You're listening to Music Tectonics. Welcome back to Music Tectonics, where we go beneath the surface of music and tech. I'm your host, Dimitri Vitsa. I'm also the CEO of Rock, Paper, Scissors, a PR firm that specializes in music tech. And you know how when you're just kind of reading the news and, and keeping in touch with what's going on in social and so forth, and there's someone that you've always wanted to talk to? Um, well, you know what's funny? Sometimes I, I, I say, hey, let's have a conversation and let's record that conversation. And so somebody that I've wanted to talk to for a long time, we've kind of been in touch digitally, but never really had a full-on conversation is with us today. Welcome to Dan Runcy, the founder of Trapital. Dan, how are you doing? I'm good, Dimitri. How are you? Thanks for having me. I'm doing great. And it's really great to have you on. Thanks for making the time. I oh, appreciate it. I'm excited. <laughs> Likewise, I know we've been pigging each other, so I'm glad we could finally chat. Awesome. And so f- for anyone that doesn't know, uh, Trapital is what you started. Uh, you call it a free weekly memo kind of on the latest moves from from big players, um, really around the business of hip hop. And I, I would almost, I don't know what the what the legal ramifications of saying this is, I would say you, you're like the billboard of hip hop. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you. I mean, the folks at Billboard do good work, so I, I appreciate that. But yeah, I think hip hop itself has just continued to grow and expand. And the people that are the business leaders in this culture have been making so many of the strategic moves that are really leading culture, leading society, and leading business. But for so long, the coverage on their moves and the companies that they were leading didn't get the same rigor and level of coverage that those in finance or those in tech did. So Trapital is an opportunity to highlight that and elevate that discussion, really breaking down the why and the how behind the decisions that get made. And as hip hop's influence continues to grow, that then increases the topics and the influence that a publication like Trapital can hopefully have. Well, it's pretty impressive because you're doing a really good job at it. I mean, your writing is just so crystal clear. You're covering uh, you know, some of the biggest names, uh, executives in the industry. You, you talk to them. You do so much analysis of the industry. Um, you know, For our music tectonics listeners who are used to hearing about a lot of music tech stuff and streaming services, you go into that stuff too, but with your own lens, which um, which is really fresh and, and, and relevant to um, you know, a broader, a broader audience, uh, than, you know, some other publications actually hit upon. So it's, it's really cool. And just to be clear for our, our listeners, you've got this memo that people can sign up for. You can do deep dives into essays on the website, but you also have a podcast as well. So, um, congrats on the, on the, on the kind of the footprint that you've built and, and really crystal clear, great research and, and writing, Dan, it's, it's awesome to have you. Thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah. It's been a evolution. It's been a journey for sure. But I definitely realize in the way that I've released the content, it's trying to make sure you're meeting people where they're at. So having a weekly memo, it's an email memo. So those listening, you can go to trapital.co and sign up for it. It is covering the three or four biggest topics that happen in the business of hip hop and all of its intersections that week. So it's trying to give a here's what happened, here's why it matters, and here's a interesting takeaway about it. But then on the other side, there are deeper evergreen topics that do require much more than that quick hit. And that's been the thought behind the essays. So those are more evergreen topics that I'll touch on. And some of those have definitely had a lot of traction and have had a strong response, not just for me, but for the growth of Trapital. And then the podcast itself was really an opportunity to speak to the people that were leading these efforts themselves. What were the decisions they made, both the past and present? How does that relate today? So it's truly been a encompassing experience of here's my perspective on what's happening in the business of hip hop, but also let's hear it straight from the people that have been building this from the ground up. Yeah. And so if we look at some of the recent essays, you have how Issa Rae became the modern mogul, um, which is so awesome because even, you know, when, when she really popped onto the scene with Insecure, the music was such a key part of that. And so you've got this broadening out from kind of hip hop culture into, into, you know, the Netflixes of the world and so forth. You've got how The Weeknd mastered his brand. Um, but you also have stuff like how Apple Music fell behind in digital streaming or how ringtone rap influenced modern hip hop. So you got both kind of like celebrity and execs and then also like this this bigger platform stuff but and 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 we'll get more into kind of like the business of hip-hop but let's let's just start at the top if you were describing the state of hip-hop to someone who just dropped on planet earth what would you tell them 
uh, I would tell them this is a culture that has shaped the entire world. And it something that started decades ago and it started as something that was shunned and looked down upon. Mm-hmm. And it has in many ways continued to have a bit of that chip on its shoulder because of <laughs> that initial look Reaction. that people had on it, that initial, you know, perspective that people were giving. And a lot of times it held the culture and the artists back from the influence that they could have. Mm-hmm. So what you've seen since then is it's evolution and growth in the US where it's artists no longer necessarily waiting for other people to dictate the influence they can have. They're understanding how popular they are, how much they can shift things and what they can do from both a business and a pop culture and uh, mm-hmm. influence perspective to really make a true difference. And we saw that happen in the US first, but as other cultures started to follow that and see the influence, we started to see the same thing happening in other countries, whether it's countries in the Middle East, countries in Asia, countries in Europe. A lot of them saw what groups like NWA and others had done and wanted to have similar uprisings, have similar mm-hmm. type of movements where they were using music as the voice to get their hurt, to get their word out. Hip hop really started as the voice for the unheard. And as that influence and that chip on his shoulder really started to grow, you saw much more of the personality come through with now the fashion and the style and the other types of media, the entertainment, and in many ways, the business focus that we see now. So this is really a culture that is continued to shift. But in some ways, even as it's grown, it's now the most popular genre of music. Some of the most popular fashion trends, business influences are coming from here. There's still many challenges that hip hop artists face because even though they're not necessarily controlling as much as their power and their influence would necessarily dictate based on what they've Mm -hmm. done, there's still a little bit of a gap in terms of their influence and the control that they get to have. So I think over time, those things will shift. But those aliens coming through, I think they on sometimes (laughs) maybe a little bit surprised to see how quickly the culture has had its influence. But on the Mm -hmm. other side, they could probably still see the core of where it came from just mm-hmm. because there's still so much that can be done and so much ground that can still be covered. Yeah. Wow, man. That was a great kind of crystallization of the essence of, of where things are. And it really, because it tells this sort of cultural story that's really about the story of America, about African-Americans in America and this outward global footprint that continues to grow to this day where there's this sense of um, just strong, I mean, I think you said chip on the shoulder kind of thing, but it's really just about how out of this dire situation relationship to the surrounding culture and people came such a strong reaction that became almost like people were drawn to it because they, they learned more about themselves by learning about people who are different than them. And and that happened with a lot of white America, I think with hip hop and continues to happen. And now you're talking about it on a global scale, which is really interesting. But I also like the fact that you talk about it from a cultural perspective, but also even the business models themselves, like the the business of hip hop, which is what's so, you know, specific about Trapital is its own cultural entity as well, its own set of values and philosophy um, as well. And so you're able to talk about both sides of that at the same time, which is really cool. Um, So what about the business of hip hop? How would you describe where that stands in 2021? Yeah, for the business of hip hop, I'd say artists are now making more money than ever, specifically hip hop artists, and they're doing more things than ever, especially from the artists before them. If we go back to hip hop's roots, a lot of those artists in the 80s and 90s, even though they were so popular, the opportunities for them to capitalize on it just wasn't there the same way that it is for artists today. I mean, you look at someone like a Cardi B, or you look at someone like a Travis Scott, they're two of the biggest names in hip hop right now, but all of the business moves that they have, whether it's within fashion or within other partnerships, within music and within other artists that they're able to help bring on to kind of come under their wing to continue to expand, those things just weren't in place. So artists being able to really leverage their brand as these multi-hyphenate people that can be your investors, they can be your 
actors and actresses. They could be your business partners. That is a really exciting time to be in. And I think because of that, there's also a tremendous amount of trade-offs that you need to make because even if you're one artist, even if you're Beyonce that has a whole entire team at Parkwood dedicated to maximizing everything your brand can do, there's still only so much you can do. I know there's that running joke of, you know, you have the same 24 hours in a day as Beyonce does, but even her herself, I mean, there's only so many things that she can do. So it requires more even more focus. It requires even more patience in terms of thinking about what is the best strategy to pick, what is the best outcome for a particular artist. And I think in a lot of ways, that is what shapes a lot of the stories that I end up covering and the essays that I write about, because there's so many ways to go about being successful. That said, you can't just pick strategies haphazardly. You still need to understand what makes most sense for your brand, what makes most sense for your company or the partnership that you're trying to make. And so much of this impacts the people that rely on artists as well. If you're a streaming service or if you work at any other type of digital or emerging technology related to music, you probably need to focus on what's happening in hip hop because they are the artists that are really helping to lead the evolution and growth that we've seen in streaming. Mm -hmm. So it's this entire ecosystem where the artists themselves are the strongest they've been, but also the ecosystem around them and all these companies that have been able to make tremendous money because of hip hop artist growth, whether it's Spotify or any of the other uh, digital streaming providers, they've been experiencing it too. So it's, it's, it's definitely an exciting time and ex I'm excited to see where this next decade goes because there's so much change from 10 years ago, 2011 up to now, I can't even imagine what 2031 is going to look like. Yeah, totally. That's so interesting because it's almost like you're saying the, the, the sort of the obstacles for hip hop required that artists think a little bit differently, like just non-traditionally, like don't necessarily think about just the traditional paths that artists have taken before hip hop really started to grow. And as a result, there's this tendency to do a lot more stuff, these other aspects. Also, the fact that hip hop is not just music, it's this culture and there's fashion and there's, um, you know, conversations and there's viewpoints and, 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 and so many other ways in which just the, the, the hip hop mindset and presence and essence has filtered into culture beyond just music, that there's other business opportunities as a result. You get that celebrity stuff of other things that can be done with food and fitness and fashion and, and all that kind of stuff. But in general, even beyond that, even if you don't reach celebrity status and you're not at that that Beyonce moment where you're just involved with so many things, it feels like there's already, even at the earliest stages of a hip hop artist career, a different tendency in how artists in the in the field think about the music industry, that their their tendency is starting to influence the rest of the industry in kind of significant ways. So I'm curious if you could talk a little bit about what's different about that mindset, um, where you think that comes from, and also more specifically, what can people from the industry, say labels, distributors, publishers, music tech companies, what they should take away from that emerging view on business? Yeah, I think you see hip hop artists move a little bit differently than artists in other industries because, or artists in other genres because there's a bit more of a belief that the systems and the powers that be may not necessarily work in your favor. Mm -hmm. And some of that kind of comes full circle with we're talking about NWA a little bit with how they didn't necessarily feel like they were able to maximize their full potential, whether it was issues they had with their manager at the time or a group like Public Enemy labeling themselves the Black CNN because they just didn't have any other outlets to truly mm -hmm. voice their opinion in. And some of that extends down to the contracts and the record label deals that artists signed, it was very tough for a lot of them to maximize their true potential because the way the a traditional record label deal works is you're essentially signing away your assets and it's the record company that owns the majority of it and then you and only end up getting you know points on a smaller portion of that. While that's true for a lot of, while that's true for almost any genre where record deals are signed, it's especially difficult for hip hop because there are, you know, clear race race differences where 
I think black artists in general weren't necessarily treated the same with the same level of fairness. And there was less belief that the man in the system was going to work in your favor, whether it was the belief that you were going to get your album to have as much support as someone else would, or you were going to get the highest level of support to do the thing that you were doing. And it's tough. And I think so much of that, you look at an artist like Jay-Z. Jay-Z is at this point, people may argue, but he is one of the greatest rappers and one of the greatest business leaders that we've had that has come from hip hop. But he himself even struggled to get signed to a record label when he was starting out. That's why he started Rockefeller Records. So when you think about that mentality and how someone like Jay-Z then, okay, he continues to grow and then he gets a deal to become the lead CEO at Def Jam, he ends up running into some challenges there because he wants to do things. He may have the title, but he still doesn't have the control to be able to maximize things the way that he sees it because historically his culture has never necessarily been the one to have been in the CEO seat at a record label at with that level of power making those moves. So then he decides to eventually leave and then start his own thing with Rock Nation. And so many of the things that he's done at Rock Nation – is a reflection of the things that he wishes he could have done at Def Jam and a reflection of things that he wishes he could do at Rockefeller, or which he could have done at Rockefeller. So, so many of those struggles and challenges that he had faced is a reflection of what he can do now. So if you don't necessarily feel like your culture is being represented in the boardroom and both in the music and the support that's being put out, you're going to be more likely to want to do those things yourself. So I think what we've seen in hip hop is artists being a bit more entrepreneurial, both within music and outside of music relative to other genres, whether it's artists wanting to start their own record label or have their own team that comes and signs under them, more likely to try to push for a joint venture. You see and hear much more of that in hip hop than you do, let's say, country music. Um, you also see it outside of the record label deals as well, whether it's artists wanting to start their own fashion companies, start their own production companies, and start any other type of business interest that they have. So much of it stems from the belief of, you know, you have to be able to create your own. And we see how everyone else does it and why we were relying on them for so long. It's the ownership that they had had the um, with their primary culture. How can hip hop have more of that? And it's why he has said statements like financial, he being Jay-Z has said statements like financial freedom is my only hope in different songs. It all stems back to that. So that's what I think is one of the differences with hip hop. And just given the way the landscape is now with improved technology and resources, the uh, barriers to entry are the lowest that they've been. It's still very competitive, but right. because you can at least start out, it makes it a bit more possible to realize some of that. So it's an exciting time for sure. Well, it's interesting because um, you know the Jay Z model is is influential, but I also feel like in hip hop, it's like the 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 just starting developing artists already have the language around uh, around like you know keep your masters, own your masters, and that's where I'm like, this is just you know it's not just at the celebrity you know top notch biggest selling artist, but it's like pervasive in the whole genre where that, that that's that and then that at that level when you've got the masses of of folks who are making hip-hop talking about that it's translating to other genres other artists starting to almost get educated by that attitude by that sense of you got to keep ownership don't let go of this right right yeah exactly i, I think the the ownership discussion has been has been a huge part of this there's been so many artists that have gotten screwed over or have fought for the masters in ownership. I mean, let's look at Taylor Swift and Kanye West. The fact that the two of them, two of the biggest artists that we've had the past decade plus were still in deals and fights trying to fight over their assets. It's crazy. That said, we understand that they both signed contracts when they're very early in their careers, but it's less about the contract itself. It's more about taking a step back and thinking about the overall system of what's in place. And you're right. So much of that discussion, and I think so much of it started with hip hop artists and music, has transcended. We're starting to hear more about it outside of music as well, whether it's directors and producers and actors in Hollywood that are trying to negotiate and trying to get more ownership or at least get some derivative rights or points on the work that they're doing. 
people see and understand the upside and even if they may get that one-time flat fee it's nowhere near the comparison of truly being able to have ownership of the asset and i think a lot of that is also the influence of tech as well we have a past decade plus of seeing more and more of the household name companies in this web 2.0 phase have these massive IPOs and seeing all the people that get rich, but then seeing all the people that often use these platforms, which or makes them popular, which is often black artists or black culture, whether it's black Twitter, so on and so forth. So seeing them be the ones to provide the content, but seeing others get rich, I think it all stems in with this idea of understanding the importance and the value of ownership and trying to push that forward. Where I think this may get really interesting, though, is that the ownership discussion, of course, is one of these things that I do think needs the proper context and nuance because for some people, signing a record label contract may still make sense. But where I think it's different now versus decades ago is decades ago, there there was really no opportunity to get put on unless you were willing to put in the work like a Master P or a or a DJ Screw where you're selling tapes out of the trunk of your car going to flea markets, right? <laughs> now you have the internet, you can at least run a bit more of a scalable operation without doing any of that and make a name for yourself, whether you're using a tool like TuneCore or you're working with uh, an independent distributor in some form. But because those options are there, it does lend itself to say, okay, if you're signing with a major record label now, it's probably because you want to become a superstar artist at the level of a Travis Scott or the level of a little baby who had one of the biggest years of anyone last year in 2020. If you want to be at that level, I think it's very tough to do it without having um, at least some type of strong partnership or deal signed. That said, I don't necessarily think it's impossible. Of course, we saw the heights that Chance the Rapper was able to go to in 2015, 2016, and to some extent 2017 as well. I still think there's an opportunity for that to happen. But yeah, I think just the way it is now, you still need to be a signed artist in order to reach that highest level of continued success for decades the way that someone like drake may very well do but i think that is looking like it can change and likely will continue to change yeah well this is so much fun dan i love the the independent perspective that you have allows you to kind of say some contextual things that you might not see in trade publications as well which is super cool we need to take a quick break but when we come back i'd like to ask you about any unexpected responses you've gotten from your work from your articles i love meeting music tectonics listeners at our events and i want to make more opportunities for you to meet and support each other virtually at least Our next Together Tuesday virtual meetup on February 16th is going to be extra special. First, I'm hosting a music tech meetup in Clubhouse, the audio-only social app at 12 p.m. Pacific time, 3 p.m. Eastern time. Don't have a Clubhouse invite yet? Get on the invite chain in the Music Tectonics community app. After my Clubhouse hangout, Dan Runcie will be in the Music Tectonics community app for an Ask Me Anything session. Look for his post in the app at 1 p.m. Pacific, 4 p.m. Eastern time. Comment and reply to ask your questions. This is your chance to ask Dan about anything we cover in this interview or what we left out. If you're not an app member yet, I'll tell you how to join in at the end of the episode. I hope to see you at Together Tuesday, February 16th on Clubhouse and on the Music Tectonics app. Okay, we're back. So Dan Runcie here with Trapital. I want to ask you, uh, let's talk a little bit about it, about Trapital. What have been some of the most pivotal articles you've published in terms of feeling like you really got to break a story or, or have a wide influence? Yeah, there's been a few that stick out to me. The first one was very early in Trapital. The fourth piece I had ever published, and this is back when Trapital was just a side project when I was testing things out. Uh-huh. I wrote an essay about J. Cole and his Dollar and a Dream Tour and was breaking down how he had done this concert series in 2013 and then 2014 and 2015 where he had went to these small venues, was only charging fans a dollar to attend. He ended up donating the money and only did his mixtape hits. And only a few people could go. He only did them in select cities. But it truly helped solidify the brand of J. Cole because up until that point, he was this artist that had great mixtapes, but he was starting to put out these more pop 
studio albums and not everyone was really feeling that people wanted the j cole that had put out uh his memorable mixtapes like friday night lights or the warm-up so when he went back and did those mixtapes solely as part of his show it was able to help solidify his base in in his in his day one fans and the way i wrote about it, i said this is j cole's a thousand true fans and a thousand true fans is a concept that was first popularized, I think it was in 2008, by uh, this guy, Kevin Kelly. And the thought is that if you have a thousand people that are paying you at least $100 a year for your work, that is $100,000. And that is enough to make a living doing the thing that you love if you're trying to explore your passion. And truly breaking that down by saying that J. Cole found it had his a thousand true fans in each city that he did that concert. So even though the cost of the concert itself was free and or, or rather the price of the mm-hmm. money coming in from the concert was nothing, but he ended up spending, you know, X amount of his own money to put into the concert itself to run it, it still was an investment because of the loyalty he was able to get from those fans and what it is able to help take his career and his success moving forward. I did not expect that piece to do as well as it did, but it did quite well. And mm-hmm. it went in many ways viral. It went more viral than any piece I had written for major publications as a freelance writer before that, even when I was on the front page of certain publications that mm-hmm. are household names. And that's when it stuck out to me that there's something here. Um, and then after that, there was a piece I had written about a year later on Jay-Z and Damon Dash and how their famous split that they had from Rockefeller Records still impacts hip hop because you had two people that were of different minds where Jay-Z, as we talked a little bit about before, is always about partnerships. How could I find the best deal that I can have or the best way to leverage partners? Because in many ways, these big time mega deals is how hip hop has had as many billionaires as it's had and people have really hit the ground running with what they've done. However, Someone like Dame Dash, who was the CEO of Rockefeller at the time, was much more coming from the opposite perspective where he wanted ownership. He was less concerned about trying to partner with these big organizations. He wanted to own his stuff. He wanted it to have that Rockefeller name or have his name. So he was much more comfortable being the owner of a smaller pie, but having a higher share of it. There's this whole um, paradox question where people ask, would you rather be rich or would you rather be king? Jay-Z was much more interested in being rich versus Damon Dash was much more interested in being king. Mm -hmm. And I think that that ownership versus partnership difference was a became a true running theme in a lot of Trapital essays. And it was because of the strength of that article and the traction it was able to help break so those were two of the ones that stuck out and then another one that i wrote later that year was actually about tyler perry so this was one of the ones i had stepped a little bit outside of hip-hop for but i knew that there was so much about what tyler perry had done that was relatable how he was able to build his fan base and build his model of having these plays about this character Medea and how he was just doing so much of it early on. And even though it didn't get much critical acclaim or anything like that, he understood his customer and he didn't care what anyone else thought. And there were so many things that were comparable there that were relevant to the type of um, stories that people were reading for in Trapital. And that was able to help extend. So that was well-timed with when he had opened up his um, big studio that he had in Atlanta it was around the grand opening of that. I believe this was in October of 2019. So yeah, that those are the three articles that I think stick, stick out. There's been several of them since then, but I think in terms of pivotal ones pivotal that ones, yeah. were moving forward, those are strong ones. That's that's awesome. No, those are those are great examples, and 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 it's really interesting to hear some of those themes that we talked about at the beginning of the conversation, kind of just you know come in and out of the conversation. And I love that you have kind of a broader broader view to to like take something like the the Taylor, Tyler 
Perry's story and kind of make it applicable to what you've been talking about in your audience and so forth. I want to jump to something uh, something else that I've kind of noticed um, in a lot of the conversations I've had in kind of the music tech world, not necessarily on the podcast, but one-on-one conversations. There's this challenge that I'm hearing about a lot lately about hip-hop's use of samples, loops, and, and beats, even if those have come from legit marketplaces um, and they have some sort of license or micro-license involved. So it seems like streaming and video services have struggled to parse the rights when segments are reused multiple times, like, you know, different songs and so forth to the point where it's like, well, what song is this? Whose song is this? Who owns the rights to this? Are we allowed to have this up here? And it goes all the way back to a song that I listened to in high school by Stetsa Sonic called Talking All That Jazz, where their music video actually shows, it's what you were talking about earlier in this in this conversation, shows the establishment having problems with with rap. Primarily, this song focused on the samples. and And now, even though we've got legitimate ways to license samples, the systems still can't ingest like the proper metadata. And so that leads to these massive takedowns, which has this kind of ricochet um, uh, backlash between artists and distributors and streaming service. I'm just curious, are you seeing a lot of this type of thing um, as music production continues to reach the hands of the masses? Is this a conversation within the hip hop world? Uh, And and what are your thoughts on, on the issue? Yeah, it's tough. It's definitely something that affects more of hip hop because sampling is just even more prevalent for what artists are doing. And so much of that exploded two two ways. One, in the mixtape era with artists putting out their releases and oftentimes intentionally taking the loops from other songs. And for a lot of times, a lot of those songs haven't been on streaming services since because they haven't been able to clear the samples. What worked Mm -hmm. on Dat Piff uh, years ago won't necessarily fly on Spotify or Apple Music for obvious reasons. I think, though, that it's tough because there's so much happening. It's so tough to keep track of. I mean, obviously, what's happening on these marketplaces, you would think, would be regulated. But at the end of the day, it's someone uploading the music. It could be anyone on the internet. You're taking their word that this was their original creation. So it's tough, even if the person that bought it's like, okay, well, I bought it for $100 on BeatStars. What's the deal? Like That still doesn't clear it. But we're also in this age where I feel like IP in general just doesn't necessarily always get the same level of credit that it or the proper attribution or whatever you want to call it that it should. Um, sometimes I think the claims and the issues with these things might be a little bit of a, a stretch because there's just so much that could come. I remember there was some lawsuit with, I think it may have been with a Katy Perry song uh, recently and I heard the original song that they were referencing it from, and I thought that the claim was a, a bit of a stretch there. But these are the type of things that are happening when you're sampling music. And I think in some ways, people are always looking for inspiration, and there's ways to always find whether it's new sounds or ways to try to adopt it. I think it can be tough to just keep track of everything. So in some ways, I want there to be a better solution because, yeah, I think at the end of the day, the original rights holders, whether the song was interpolated or sampled, deserve their attribution. But I also know just with the way things spread to nowadays in the internet, it's tough. I mean, from a personal example, I had recently interviewed Master P and he had had this one clip about uh, his thoughts on Clubhouse uh, being a billion dollar company. And I had posted it, but after I posted it, there wasn't necessarily any attribution to me afterwards. And the clip ended up finding its way on all the hip hop blogs and all the different Mm -hmm. people. And they posted as if like Master P just went on Instagram himself to say this. And I'm like, oh, come on. Like, where's the, you know, where's the push here? So that's definitely much more on a smaller level than someone putting everything behind a song. But I think it's, I say that to highlight how tough it is now. And it's like, in some ways, once things spread so much, it's very difficult to get a grasp on it, especially today. We're definitely in an era where there's this um, search for the right balance in terms of attribution, not to mention compensation. Um, but uh, I mean, yeah, like you ca- in in a sample, it's you know people can directly check a, f- a audio fingerprint, a thumbprint, whatever it's called, and uh, and track back to an original source in many cases um, if the technology's there or if somebody does the work. And of course, they do the DMCA takedowns or whatever um, if no license is in place, but everything is subject to um, getting posted without attribution. Like every comment 
comment, every photo, every video, everything you do, you go to Reddit and you're like, oh, that's pretty cool. Where the hell did that come from? We will never find out. You know, it's, like, <laughs> it's, a, it's a real shift in, in how we operate as a society around intellectual property, even if that intellectual property is in a smaller or newer digital form that in the past wasn't monetizable. <laughs> but it, it's just, it's, it's crazy. Um, so uh, uh, appreciate the response on that. Uh, let, let's bring it to the core music tectonics kind of topic. What music tech trends or companies are coming across your desk that intrigue you the most? Yeah, so there's a few. One of the things I keep hearing about lately are NFTs, which are non-fungible right. tokens. And I think this is interesting because for those listening, NFTs are essentially these digital items. It's a unique digital item that is managed similarly to how something is managed with uh, that's on a blockchain, whether it's a cryptocurrency or something like that. So it's essentially, if we think about how hot and popular collectibles are in general in music, whether it's artists having vinyls or artists having some type of merch that is limited and how much money is being made, think about the assets that can be traded in these worlds that are valuable. Like, Let's say that you are playing a game on Fortnite, you're in a Fortnite battle royale and someone like uh, Travis Scott or whoever is having experience there only has 20 of these Astroworld t-shirts or something like that, right? And you want your avatar to have one of them. I think that's a world that is interesting and it is only going to expand just given how much of our identities are tied up in digital. I could think so many of those having integrations on other social media platforms too. We even see this in the smallest ways with um, exclusivity. Look at an app like Clubhouse um, and how it was able to gain so much traction early on because there was only so many limited spots or even something like a blue check mark on social media. Anytime there is this finite asset where some people have it and some people don't, the asset drives up. We've seen the value of that in the physical world. And of course, we see it now in the digital world. So I think this is a huge space and I'm interested to see how that develops. Oh, I love it, man. And 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 that's so interesting that you mentioned the the check marks on a social media official account um, and tying that to NFTs. As you were talking, I was almost thinking, I bet there's people who this may be the first time they hear about NFTs and they're like, what, what is dude talking about? And it made me think <laughs> to explain, it's like, on Zoom, when you discover you can have a virtual background, don't you want to represent yourself on that digital format with some something that's a little bit different, something fun, a conversation starter, something that shows your identity or or whatever? Um, you know, I've gotten access to some interesting. You know, we do a lot of live stream events, and so some some interesting technology that allows for more animation in your virtual background or allows you to shrink yourself down. It does, and it's like totally transformed my identity online. So it's the same kind of stuff, right? <laughs> yeah, it's something else. I'm interested. I feel like if they have something cool, I made it and get one myself. Yeah, totally, man. So any other uh, music tech trends or companies you want to kind of like uh, mention that, that you're keeping an eye on? Yeah, the other pieces, the acquisitions that have been happening. So there's two types of acquisitions that intrigue me. The first is the major record labels acquiring these indie distributors. Uh, in the past few months, or I guess the past few years, Sony has acquired now the Orchard, Human Resources, and most recently, AWOL from, from Cobalt. And ironically, AWOL had stood for Artist Without a Label, and that's now under one of the three biggest record labels. And while I'm not surprised that these acquisitions happen, because if we think about it, each of these parties has what the other one wants, right? Major labels want to be able to tap into the artists that have already been vetted, the artists that have already been de-risked in some ways because of the proven success they've had on these independent record labels that have already been developed in some ways, because those are things that the major record label doesn't necessarily offer. Development isn't necessarily one of the key value adds. And by nature, an artist that is on an indie distributor obviously prefers the economics compared to signing away you know a, a four or five or six album deal on a major record label but on the flip side a lot of the artists that are successful on these indie distributors some of them could easily level up if they were able to work with a company that had or work with a major record label that has the marketing budget and the global distribution to be able to put them on the map everywhere across the world 
And I think this is one of the nuances that could often get lost with everyone thinking that, oh, you know, with the touch of a button, you could put your music up on SoundCloud and reach everybody. In theory, yes, but because the barriers are so low, it's harder to sift through the noise. Well, how do you sift through the noise? You could sift through the noise if you have the budget of a major record label to put behind you and also their expertise of understanding how to make sure that your money can be used strategically to ring on every continent once it drops. So that's two parties needing the other one. So I'm interested to see how that develops because even though there's been a wave of them, I'm sure that won't be the last. Um, But then the second type of acquisition I'm interested in are the media companies that some of the major record labels are acquiring. Some of this has been a bit more focused on Warner than some of the others, but Mm -hmm. recently they had acquired Hip Hop DX, well-known hip hop media publication that's been out for years now. And they required the owner of the Daquan Instagram account, which is essentially a popular meme account on Instagram that has gotten quite a bit of traction. And I think in some ways, the thought is similar here. While it's not necessarily the direct artist distribution, it's more of the fan and data connection where you're trying to get a better understanding for who are the artists that are being talked about the most, whether it's seeing who is being liked the most, seeing who people are talking about in comments. And if you have the access to that data and the ability to reach those customers directly, you might be able to push more directly to them when your releases do end up dropping or have direct content to them. I think there's a few different options there that can play themselves out. But in general, I think media companies are quite attractive. That's why you've seen Spotify and others acquire those that are a bit more focused on podcasting. But clearly, major record labels see the opportunity to create their own content as well. This is why so many of them have started podcasting as well. So I think the acquisitions in that space are going to continue to open up too. So yeah, those are the two that I would say the um, acquisitions in um, the for the major labels acquiring the indie yeah. distributors and the acquisitions for the major labels acquiring media companies. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. G- great, great thoughts. Appreciate that. Look, we need to take one more short break. And then Dan, I want to ask you about the lasting impact of the show must be paused. I know I'm changing gears fast here, but lots to talk about. This has been so much fun. Let's keep going. We'll be right back. Music Tectonics listeners are the smartest music tech minds out there, and this is your chance to speak up and win a prize. Every week, I pose a big question for you to answer in the Music Tectonics community app. This month's big question winner is C.Y. Lee. He answered my question about the coolest audio innovations we'll see emerge in 2021, saying, AI and algorithm-driven compositions that are aware of your calendar, location, and heart rate, which play in your AirPods all day like a real-world game soundtrack. I want all those things in my life. We're going to send CY a copy of one of my favorite books about marketing as storytelling, Made to Stick by Chip and Dan Heath. Thanks for your support, CY, and thanks to everyone who answered a big question this month. Keep it up. Now, here's a fresh big question for this episode. Are you happy with how the music industry handles the attribution, monetization, and rights of samples, loops, and beats? What do you think needs to change in the future? If you want a chance to win next month's book, look for the post that goes with this episode in the Music Tectonic Community app forum. We'll tag it, hashtag the big question, and answer in the comments. There's a new question every week. If you're not a Music Tectonics app member yet, I'll tell you how to join at the end of this episode. Now back to the show. Okay, I'm back here, Dan. Like I said, I wanted to ask you, changing gears a bit, about your thoughts on the show must be paused movement, which emerged in the wake of the George Floyd and Breonna Taylor murders. It seems to be having a lasting impact on conversations about hiring and empowering more black professionals in music, in the music industry. But I'm curious, do you think it will result in actual shifts? Um, Besides white people waking up and developing a disciplined approach to challenging themselves around racism at every level, what do you think needs to happen and to see more balance and equity across the music industry? Yeah, I think it's mixed. I mean, on one hand, I do think that there will be some change because I do think that there's great people that are working on this. I know the people that have been leading the initiative, and I've spoken to a few of them, whether it's as um, podcast guest on the Trapital Podcast or other conversations I've had. I think just a few people to highlight, uh, Binter Brown, Felicia Fan, and Carly Hustle, they've all mm-hmm. been doing great work and being involved in these conversations. And I think they're all women who understand this better than most anyone in the industry and 
are having seats at the table to at least help push this forward. That said, I know that there's only so much that they can do. This problem is much larger than them. And it's it's tough because at the end of the day, what really needs to be done is two things. One, having the money and be put behind the whether it's the artists themselves or the communities they come from and the true support to help address some of the systemic challenges. Because there's two things, right? It's the music industry doing the work it can do within itself to help Mm -hmm. ensure that the right voices are the ones that are being elevated and raised. So how do we make sure that they are hiring the executives and putting them in the right places and making sure that they are the ones that are ultimately in control and making the best decisions because in some ways it is ironic where if you have a music if your company is relying solely on music that is created majority by people who are black and the people who are the leading executives are not black but they are in many ways having several people that would love to be able to be in those positions but mm-hmm. the powers that be won't let them get there then there's a little bit of an imbalance there so by being able to make sure that the people who have a good understanding and are in positions of power being elevated and developed. So it's not just like you're hiring someone and letting them be. No, you're truly giving the same support you would give anyone else, putting them in the leadership positions. That would be great. I mean, I would love to see uh, uh, a black person be a CEO of one of the major uh, big three record labels at some point. I think that would just show a clear side of commitment, but I also know it's much bigger than them. It's a whole entire ecosystem structure that can't just be like a quote unquote chief diversity officer or someone like that coming in. Um, so yeah, I think that's part of it. And then two, also making sure that the money is put towards a number of ways, whether it's supporting the talent that's in the record label itself, both the artists that are there and the people that are working, and also supporting the communities. I know that many of the record labels had pledged money to support to different causes. And a lot of those things were great to get you know, big press and coverage in June of 2020, everything in the wake of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor's murders. But what's going to happen in 2021, right? Let's not just wait for the next... Um, unfortunate um, death to see some type of response. Let's have one of these major record labels proactively say something. And I I think that could help at least continue some of the growth and the evolution of what we see. And hopefully that can lead to both more equity and ideally a better system moving forward. Yeah, sure. Hope so. Yeah, that that it gets beyond just just kind of you know the 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 black box on social media and people actually um, making some shifts in who's being hired and who's getting the kind of the authority decision making in in the entire industry and and all of society obviously too. But I know it's 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 especially poignant to see how many creators are black and then and then to have this um, you know this disparity in leadership there. So. Hopefully, I mean, I, I, I will say, you know, I, I've seen more white people talking about it and being more aware of it than I've seen in a long time, um, which 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 is a good, I think it's a good sign. It's like recognizing that the problem's there. I don't know that everyone knows what to do about it, but at least there seems to be an awareness uh, that's, that's a little bit more mainstream than I've seen in the past. Um, but of course, it's going to take disciplined uh, allyship and people continuing to, uh, to try to try to address the issue, but appreciate your thoughts there. Um, moving into 2021, Dan, what are your predictions for the music industry this year or in the next few years? What, what are we going to see that's new or different about the business of hip hop or the industry at large? I'm excited to see how the live stream space continues to develop. I think that in the post-pandemic world, there's been a number of quick evolutions even in the past 11, 12 months since the pandemic started of how artists are using different platforms, different platforms coming up. But more importantly, what are the best business models and how does this intersect with the live performance work that artists will already be doing? I think in some ways it'll look in tandem where artists won't necessarily stop touring, but could the live stream be a way to either reach different areas that an artist may not necessarily go to on tour the same way, or it could it be a way to use it as a launch for a particular product. Like if we think about it less as a replacement, but more as a opportunity to 
create excitement about a particular event. I think that Dua Lipa, even though she's not a hip hop artist, she had one of the more interesting models where it was a paid event for a certain subset of her customer base or fan base that had the willingness to pay. But in other regions of the world, she was able to secure deals with the um, the the distributors and the broadcasters for them to be able to stream the event. And in exchange, they were the ones that paid her. And mm. the event stayed up on demand where people could purchase the event no different than a um, on-demand streaming video thing that someone could buy on Amazon. I think that's interesting as I feel like we'll probably see more of that. And I think the second thing I think we'll see more of, I alluded to this earlier, but I really do think we'll see another independent artists like some rises as big as Chance the Rapper was a few years ago, truly make headway in the music industry. And I think could make a strong rival to the success of someone that we've seen that has risen to the heights on the back of the major record label system. I still think a lot of the stars need to align for that to happen, but mm-hmm. I think it's definitely possible. I love it. That is that is right in line with the seismic shifts that we talk about at Music Tectonics. Um, and it's going to be so interesting to see who that is, how they do it, what path they take, you know, what tools come into play that that um, that that enable that, or just some creative approach they take, or you never know. Like sometimes it feels like music, some music just speaks to so many people at the right time. It's like timeliness and relevance that it's unstoppable. You know, it doesn't matter, you know, so it'll be not, not, not to say that it just happens arbitrarily, but you, but you know what I mean? <laughs> right, right. Yeah. Cool. Well, this has been an absolute blast, Dan. I've loved having the ability to talk to you about so many different topics and to get really a great top level perspective um, with a lot of informed uh, ideas and, and, and opinions. Um, it just makes me think music tectonics, conference goers, listeners, blog readers, everyone in our community needs to keep up with Dan Runcy from Trapital. How do you like people to connect with you um, if they want to get to know you or, or learn more? Yeah, I'd say the best way, one, if you're listening to this, you're probably a fan of podcasts. So definitely check out the Trapital podcast. As we alluded to before, um, I have interviewed the people that are leading the way uh, from an executive perspective and the work that they've been doing to help elevate the business of hip hop. Recently had Master P as a recent guest, had Jason Jeter, had Steve Stout, um, Binta Brown, as I mentioned, a few other names who have truly lead the space. So if you're interested in that, definitely check out that podcast available wherever you get podcasts. And um, also make sure you check out the Trapital website as well, because I do write a weekly email memo that covers the latest in hip hop. So if you go to trapital.co, you can see a spot where you could sign up for the newsletter, sign up there, and you'll get the latest memo in your inbox every Monday. Awesome. Dan Runcy with Trapital. It's been an absolute pleasure having this conversation with you. We're going to have to do it again sometime soon. Sounds good. Keep you posted. Will do. Stay safe out there. You too. Thanks, Dimitri. Thanks, Dan. I've got one more announcement. Join me for a music tech mixer. This online event takes place Wednesday, February 24th at 1 p.m. Eastern. Meet folks from Banzoogle and Fortunes who are innovating direct-to-fan engagement in the music industry. Then we'll invite you to come on camera so you can introduce yourself and build your music tech network. Break up the Zoom gloom and the webinar haze. Find the link to RSVP at musictectonics.com, the Music Tectonics community app, or any of our social channels. See you there. Thank you for listening to Music Tectonics. If you like what you hear, please hit subscribe on your favorite podcast app. Become a part of the Music Tectonics community, a social network just for music tech aficionados like you. It's free to join. Use it on the web at app.musictectonics.com or find the mobile app for Apple and Android devices in the relevant app stores. Connect with people from all corners of music and tech, answer the big question, and meet me there on Together Tuesdays. There's more about the community app, this podcast episode, our annual conference, and our newsletter at musictectonics.com. Peace! You're listening to Music Tectonics.